Hello, I'm Fern Cotton and this is Happy Place. This is going to be a big year for Happy Place. Lots of exciting stuff that will be happening in real life to share with you so, so soon. And as ever, loads of completely brilliant guests on the podcast. We're starting the year with the gorgeous Tom Daly. The one thing that being a parent for me is to let go of chasing perfection. You're never going to get absolute perfection and realising that there's more to life than just constantly chasing perfection allowed me to actually perform better anyway because I wasn't so hard on myself. I was kinder to myself when things weren't going right because I would try and put myself in the position of if Robbie didn't do something right, how would I react? That's always comes from a place of kindness and it's okay, we're, we're going to we'll get there. Don't worry, like give yourself a chance. Tom started diving competitively in 2002 and is a multiple Commonwealth, European and world champion. But it wasn't until the Tokyo 2020 Games that he won an Olympic gold. How did he do it? Well, it will become clear when you hear this chat that he's recently let go of chasing perfection. Becoming a parent will definitely do that for you. It seems as though, ironically, no longer being defined by achieving perfection in his career is what allowed him to win that sought-after medal. Oh, and we do, of course, talk about knitting, because how could we not? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, let's do it. Here's Tom. Tom. Hello. Oh, Tom, it's so nice to see you. I, I just had to sort of consult my phone and see when we last did the podcast because you and Lance came on to Happy Place and it was in March 2018. Oh my, that was before Robbie was born. That's I insane. That I know. Insane. I know. I I think because the last two years have been such a weird blur, um, I couldn't quite place when it was, but so much has happened in that time globally, but also in your life. So much has happened in, I guess it's sort of coming up to four years since I I came to your lovely home and and we had such a gorgeous chat. And of course, at that point, you and Lance were preparing for the greatest change. You were... (laughs) you know, just getting ready for for Robbie's birth. And we were talking a lot about parenthood. And I wonder how, because I listened back to a bit of it this morning and it was so lovely to hear you both talking about the excitement and your anticipation of Robbie's birth. You know, it's it's almost impossible to answer, but is it as you expected, parenthood? It's, you know, there's so many things that you hear of, oh, you know, it's the best thing in the world and it all goes so quickly and you think, oh, yeah, sure, like, it'll go really quickly, but sure, it'll drag. But it goes so quickly. It's been the most magical experience of my life. And it's not just that 
it's of course it comes with its challenges and it comes with its hard times and it's uh things that you have to overcome but at the same time there's this you know you can't even describe the amount of love that you can feel and it kind of opens up a whole new like corridor in your heart of the emotions that you can feel and that how deeply you can feel them so for me like I never used to be someone that was all that emotional or, or someone that would cry or someone that would feel the emotions in the depth that I can feel them now and it just is shifted my perspective so dramatically in so many different ways and and I think that's what's been really what's really helped in, you know with my diving and stuff is just that shift of perspective of what actually matters most and that's that Robbie is happy and healthy and everything else comes second to that so yeah it's been more than I could have ever dreamed of honestly are you the sort of parent that you thought you'd be because before I had kids I thought I'm going to be so chilled and be this really like laid back mom who's just like, yeah, guys, whatever goes. I am the opposite of that. I'm the opposite of that, Tom. Like I get so worried about, overly worried about things. I get really pernickety about things. I get really stressed about stuff. Some of it's because I'm blaming myself that I'm not doing things as I think I should be or I'm worried I'm getting it wrong. Other points, I'm just sort of overwhelmed by the whole experience, but yeah. I'm definitely not the mum I thought I was going to be. Yeah, I think I, I think I would have to agree. Like, I, I thought I was going to be the softy, and I thought I was going to be the one that was going to let Robbie get away with murder, and Lance was going to be more strict. And actually, what's actually turned out is that Lance is like, you know, anything you want. If he, as soon as he gets a cuddle or a kiss, like you can, you can get anything out of Lance. But he worries a lot. He worries that he's. Do it like you're saying, doing the right thing. He worries about yeah. if Robbie's going to hurt himself and he worries that all of these things. Whereas for me, I'm very much the one who is structure, routine, very athlete-like, if you like, and being able to <laughs> yeah, kind of yeah. set those boundaries. But at the same time, I am i don't worry as much. I'm someone that allows Robbie to explore and do things himself and allow that creativity to come out. Like even just, for example, you know, we bake most weekends and I let Robbie do everything in terms of putting the ingredients in the bowl trying to t- like telling him when to stop pouring when to start pouring let him crack the eggs make a mess and it's funny because now like not that you know things don't turn out perfectly but like that's okay and like he's been trying and like it's interesting just to see just from letting him try himself make mistakes make a mess he's always like you know it's okay papa sometimes we make a mess and we can clean it up and i'm like that's right and just allowing him to be able to try things himself and not worry too much about like i was always very before very house proud i wanted everything to be tidy and everything to be put away and in its place and it's still a little <laughs> bit like that but it's very much like you know when kids come along it's like a bulldozer's come through and like it completely yeah. destroyed the place but i like that's something that i'd like allow him and encourage him to do is just to be able to experiment with things and try things and not be and you know if things don't go right or don't go to plan he learns from them and i think it's been a really special experience with that Do you think your reaction to parenting in terms of you kind of encouraging Robbie to not feel like there has to be that element of perfection is because you've had to have that in your life. You know, perfection comes hand in hand with sports, especially in yours, where you've got to be perfect for for 1.6 seconds. You have to be perfect. Is that sort of making you, I guess, slightly more aware that you want Robbie to feel like that there can be margin for error. Yeah, and I think, you know, my whole career, like you say, has been about chasing perfection. And the one thing that being a parent for me is to let go of chasing perfection. 
you're never going to get absolute perfection and doing what you can to do the best that you can, but also having that balance of realizing that there are, there's more to life than just constantly chasing perfection allowed me to actually perform better anyway, because I wasn't so hard on myself. I was kinder to myself when things weren't going right, because I would try and put myself in the position of if Robbie didn't do something right, how would I react? And this always comes from a place of kindness and it's okay, we're, we're gonna, we'll get there. Don't worry, like give yourself a chance. And I think that's something that I've now started to put back onto myself is that giving myself a little bit of a break when it comes to that intensity of chasing perfection. Um, and I think that's another thing that my parents also taught me and I didn't realize at the time because, you know, as an athlete, as a kid growing up, you always put so much pressure on yourself. I remember going into my first national championships when I was nine years old or just turned 10. And it was the first senior national championships and it was in Southampton. And I was so nervous about competing and I was traveling, I was traveling there with my dad and I said to him, like, I'm so nervous. What am I going to do? I'm going to embarrass myself. It's going to be awful. And I was putting all this pressure on myself. And my dad said to me, Tom, how many people are in that competition tomorrow? And I said, I think there's about 18 people in that competition. And he was like, okay, you know, so if you, let's say you come last and you come 18th in that competition. And I was like, yeah, that'd be so embarrassing. He was like, well, no, if you come 18th, you're going to be 18th best in the whole country. And how cool is that? And I was like, you know what? Being 18th best in the country is pretty darn good, you know? And I just all of a sudden was like, that again, that perspective and that not having the pressure on me from anyone externally just allowed me to fly in the way that I wanted to. And uh, I think that's something that I really want to teach. Well, I want to be able to share that lesson from my parents uh, with Robbie. Yeah, it's. You know, I loved reading about that in your book. It's so beautiful that your parents gave you that amazing foundation that, you know, whatever, you know, in the book you say your dad would clap at even the most diabolical dive. And that really struck me as such a beautiful thing that whatever you did would be celebrated and accepted. But obviously that was the counterbalance to the to the the world that, that was projecting their hopes and desires on you you know, representing Team GB, you've got all that expectation on you. So it's so brilliant that you had in your home life, no expectations, just Mm. encouragement, because, you know, that pressure is so full on. And now you are in this new chapter of your life, you have a family and you want to sort of let go of that notion of perfection. How are you finding that? Because I, I, I struggle with this one. I want my work to be the best it can be. And obviously... Okay, let's isolate it to looking at podcasts. Some will go brilliantly and exactly how I'd planned. Some I'll come away and think, oh, just, that just wasn't quite what I wanted it to be. I, I just didn't articulate myself properly or I was nervous or whatever. I've, you know, if I've got a guest that I'm terrified to interview, I might come away and beat myself up a bit. I find it really hard to let go of perfection because I want to deliver something of quality. So, ha- how do you navigate that? Yeah, I mean, it's again, from my, in my diving world, uh, it's come from experience. Starting in 2008, my first Olympics, I didn't have any pressure on me to perform because I was 14. I was just kind of going there and enjoying it. And that was when I felt like my diving was at its, mo- its best and most relaxed and it, I didn't overthink anything. And then going into 2012, there was a lot of external pressure uh, going into that competition. But I knew I had another Olympics in me, so I didn't put as much pressure on myself. 
But then 2016 came around and I had, I put loads more pressure on myself, but didn't have the external pressure. And I've constantly had this like battle with where pressure comes from and whether it comes from myself or whether it comes externally and how I'm able to, you know, fight around perfection on that, on that particular day. Because as athletes, we train so much and so hard for years and years and years, hours and hours to, for that one chance every four years. And with that comes an extreme amount of pressure, knowing that all of that last four years of work, and even for me in the last 20 years that I've been diving, it all comes to that Olympic Games, that competition, that one chance. And if you mess it up on that one time, it's over. And if you think like that, it's going to be so overwhelmingly terrifying that you can't even control yourself and it's going to just, it will completely consume you. And like you say, with chasing that perfection, I knew that going into the Olympic Games, in order to win, you have to be near perfection. But if you think like that and you think, oh, I need perfection, and you're constantly thinking of the outcome of what you want it to be, you get lost in that. So the big thing that I've learned over my diving career is to stay incredibly in the moment and stay present and focus on the process because if you focus on the process of what you need to do at each step, the outcome will look after itself. So as soon as you start getting ahead of yourself about what result you want, what score you want, what you want to be able to achieve, you're already too far ahead. You have to be extremely present, extremely focused. And that's something that I'm really grateful for mindfulness that I started in 2016, which was a little bit too late for the actual Olympic Games because I'd only been doing it for like five or six months before that point. But I really noticed my journey with mindfulness, meditation and just other mindful activities like my knitting and crochet, all those things have allowed me to have this different sense of centering myself, letting go of things that I can't control. Don't try and control the uncontrollables, being present and all of those things and the sense of perspective of knowing that regardless, if I do really well, or if I do terribly, that my family are going to love me at home, regardless, just allowed me to go back to that 2008 Tom, where I could just enjoy it without that external pressure, no pressure on myself. I just got to the point at the Olympics this year where I was like, you know what? I'm here at, the, at my fourth Olympic Games after diving for 20 years, and this is bloody cool. Like, regardless of what <laughs> anyone says, this is bloody cool. And uh, that was the first time I've ever gone into an Olympic Games feeling like that, because before it was all about, I need to perform, I need to do this, I need to do that. But I just went there and I was, it was the most relaxed I've ever been. How beautiful to hear that. It's encouraging. Well, and obviously you got a gold medal, so yeah. it, it worked. And, and it's so beautiful because it rallies against what we're taught, which is that you have to push and strive and you've got to, you know, it's almost a painful thing to get to the top. But you're clearly stating and you've proved it by winning a gold medal by walking into something in a relaxed manner and actually focusing on the enjoyment and the process is going to stand you in much better stead to to get the outcome that you wanted anyway. And, yeah. and, and cognitively, I understand this, but I still fail to really live and breathe that one. And, I, and you know, I text you when I started reading the book. You get straight into the book. There's no messing around. Yeah. In the first chapter, I was like, oh, my God, I really, really, really need to read this book because this is exactly like you described exactly how my anxiety feels. And it's something, you know, I'm I'm still living with now, which is why I was so intrigued by the book and I was so desperate to talk to you today, but also wanted to text you to to thank you for writing it, because it is sometimes it feels like an inexplicable sensation when you're going through anxiety. And, and the, the episode I'm obviously talking about is 
in 2012 where you you, you were doing the, the twister dive and whilst you did that dive, someone's camera flashed and this triggered a series of events that led to you feeling extremely anxious about that particular dive. Mm. And I have that with, with certain things in my life and sometimes I feel quite trapped by it and debilitated and like it will never go. But But you are proof that you can do the work and you can rid yourself of that panic. Yeah. And that is exactly what I needed to read. Yeah, I mean, I, like at times it was extremely crippling. I think, you know, Simone Biles was talking about it in the build-up to these Olympic Games and why she had to pull out of so many events because she had what we call in, like, gymnastics and diving, like the twisties, where your body, your, like, neural pathways are, like, lost and you end up, like, getting lost in the air. You don't know which way's up, which way's down. You know you're going to end up with a smack. And it was such a terrifying experience to go through in the middle of an Olympic Games and then having to do it again and then kind of come back out of that and then not only deal with that anxiety around that particular dive, but then figuring out my purpose after London 2012. Where was I going to go next? What was... I'd never looked past London 2012. So then thinking about going right back into diving was like, what am I doing? I just turned 18. I've never experienced my like life. I've not gone out with my friends I've not been able to like be an 18 year old and all of a sudden I'm right back into it where I started and having to dedicate my whole life to this again so I was in this really struggling place of not knowing where I was going to go how I was going to deal with it and you know in that time I met Lance which is I think you know Lance is the reason that I was able to carry on diving because he gave me a sense of purpose and I felt like I was for the first time understood because with all the anxiety I was feeling it was Right after London 2012, I had nobody that I could go and talk to about how down I was feeling about the Olympic Games because, you know, I couldn't talk to my teammates because if I said to a mom, I'm feeling really down at the moment, you know, they'd be like, well, you won an Olympic medal. Like, we didn't. You did. Like, you should be happy. And I knew I should feel happy and I knew I should have been okay. But, like, it's not a rational thing to with anxiety. It comes in, like, a completely different form than you could ever think of it. And it's really hard to explain. And I, it was when I met Lance in March 2013, nearly nine years ago now, I said to... I was explaining that to him. And he had a similar experience after he won his Oscar in 2009. Like, he had this whole year afterwards where he was feeling so anxious and feeling like he couldn't um like where was he going now what's next what's his purpose like how can I feel so down after I've just achieved one of my biggest life dreams so uh, once we kind of once I found like he understood that and also he had lost his brother I'd lost my dad and we had understood loss and the success and the highs and the lows of being at the top of your uh, chosen field so and he actually inspired me to get back into it because he was able to come out the other side of it and start to be successful again. And I thought, you know what? If he can do it, I can do it. And that whole journey kind of took me on this road to overcoming my anxiety around this dive. And, you know, there were lots of different things that I could have done. I could have kept persevering with that dive. But, you know, sometimes with anxiety around a certain thing, you have to come up with certain things to be able to not only overcome it, but be able to move forward from it. And that's when I started learning a new twisting dive, which was completely out of my comfort zone because twisting for me is something that I hate to do. So to think about learning something completely new and some completely unknown was terrifying because my coach came, at the time, Jane, came to me and said, she showed me a video of a circus trick in Cirque du Soleil. And she was like, we need to turn that circus trick into an Olympic dive. And I think we can do it. And 
all of this, you can imagine, my anxiety levels were through the roof. I was like, oh my gosh, learning a new dive. How am I going to do this? We've got the Olympics in the next two and a half years. How are we going to do that? And yeah, it was when I started to let go of trying to feel like I could control everything and realizing that you can't control everything. And sometimes you just have to hit change head on and try and deal with it the best that you can. And that's, again, something the pandemic taught me even further was that, you know, things can change at any moment. Things can go in the complete different direction to what you're expecting them to go. And you have to be ready to ride that wave and not take everything so seriously. But it was something that I really struggled with initially. But once I started to, you know, once so many things started changing in my life in different directions, you learn to ride that wave. And I think that's one of the thing that I'm most grateful for in my sport is learning to deal with the uncontrollables and ride those changes. Well, I'm so happy that that you've done that. And it's these are the sorts of stories that people like me need to hear because, but actually you talking there has made me think, maybe I've done a bit of that actually. Maybe mm. I'm being too down on myself because, you know, one of my um, triggers or my, my fears or something I feel debilitated around is live radio, which I did for years and years without even thinking about it, wasn't nervous, just got on the air. Sometimes I'd even be like sending an email while talking. I was that relaxed and I, you know, I could do it. I was good at it. And due to lots of different stuff that was going on in my life and, um, and feeling wildly out of control, quite frankly, uh, which led me into a pretty dark place, I can't imagine even putting myself in that situation but I have created a podcast to avoid having to do it Mm. so I've kind of done a bit of the maybe this is my Cirque du Soleil trick and I need to not be so down on myself yeah I mean like at the end of the day you are still doing what you love and you've done and sometimes you have like as you change as life changes you don't always have to be doing the same thing your life can adapt to you as you get older and for me that's something that I had to deal with like I had to deal with I still had to do a twisting dive that was part of the thing like you know you don't necessarily have to keep doing radio but you love to talk to people and you love to have that engagement and, you know, figuring out a way for you to be able to still do what you love. You know, sometimes you have to make changes. Sometimes you have to adapt. And I think that's something that as human beings, we are made to be able to adapt and figuring out how that adaptation is for you is completely different to everyone else. And there's no one route through anxiety. There's no one route through depression. There are, it's like a, you know, a, a river with lots of streams to figure out what the best and that you know you'll figure out the best one for you well tom daly you've already made me feel a million times better about a situation <laughs> i worry about all the time so wow that's that's quite profound that's very cool thank you tom that's awesome um no yeah it's a funny one you know anxiety is hard to explain hard to talk about hard to understand if you haven't had it hard to navigate but I think you've described so brilliantly there how you found a coping mechanism and also you've already touched on mindfulness which is a huge part of your preparation for events now and the way that you balance out the the high octane feelings around diving and also something that seems of paramount importance is visualization and you Mm. and I've heard Jessica Ennis-Hill talk about the same thing she came on the podcast ages ago as well and and she talked about the night before an event, imagining the whole thing playing out how you want it to. How has that been game-changing for you? For me, visualisation has been 
a, a massive game changer for me. It's something that, you know, I, it was only since the Olympics that someone said, oh yeah, you know, it's about manifesting your own destiny and like visualizing and getting, but you know, I've been, I, without realizing it, I've been visualizing for a, like, since I was a little kid, nine years old, you know, any dream is essentially visualization. You're visualizing yourself achieving something you really want to. So when I was nine, I had this little medal book that I would draw around all the medals that I'd won, put my age, where it was, what the competition was, and how I felt about the competition. And in the front of that book, I drew a picture of me doing a handstand saying London 2012, the Olympic rings, and all that kind of stuff. And at that point, London wasn't even uh, the host city. It was still a candidate city. And it was just something that I dreamed of since I was a little kid. And to finally get to that point where I was actually able to do the handstand in London 2012 and actually compete made me realize that, oh, wow, I've been visualizing this. And then in the build up to 2020 and 2016, I was visualized like every night when I laid in bed, I would visualize the six dives that I do in competition every time, every night before bed. And initially I used to try and visualize them doing them perfectly, but things would go wrong. Things would slip in and like you'd like start to visualize yourself to having a bad day. And I used to just, I used to work on it every single day, every day to work, get to that point where I was able to do the dives in my head and do them perfectly every single time. So, and I started to encourage Matty, my synchro partner to do this as well. If every night in bed, visualize yourself doing those dives perfectly at the Olympic games every day, just visualize yourself doing it. It may not be perfect as at the start, but you'll get there. And sometimes it makes your heart race and it makes you think, oh my gosh, like I'm, I'm going to, you put yourself in that position you put yourself in that heightened adrenaline rush that you get when you're at an Olympic games. So the, the more you visualize it, you get to that point where you're like, oh, I've done this a million times. And you get to that diving board and you're like, I've done this so many times now. And all I've got to do is execute what I visualized millions and millions of times. And standing on that diving board at the Olympic Games, even in, just before I go up there, I do another visualization. Before every dive, I'll do a visualization of what I'm about to do. And I also do like a really micro meditation mindfulness thing at the back of the board where it's just like breathing work. 10 big deep breaths at the back of the board with my eyes closed just to try and like ground myself and just give myself a little bit of that take away a bit of that anxiety and fear because it was actually one of my diving heroes Greg Luganus he once said to me that fear is just excitement without breathing and sometimes you can stand on the end of that diving board and feel terrified about what you're about to do at an Olympic Games you know that you've worked this your whole life for this one moment and you have to execute and that can be extremely you know, uh, you, you could get terrified of that moment. So sometimes just taking that chance to just breathe and just put yourself back into the, and again, breathing and all of that just puts things into so much better perspective and you have such a clearer head. So when I got onto the end of that diving board, that fear no longer was fear. With breath, it became excitement and I knew I was ready to do what I needed to do. Yeah, Mel Robbins said the same on this podcast and I've been thinking about that a lot since. It's... um breathing has you know the excitement anxiety connection but but breath work certainly I try and do some of this on my Instagram lives I'm doing one later today actually sometimes it's met with people going it's just breathing like what's this got to do with anything but you forget when you are in stress or anxiety you either hold your breath sometimes you hold it down really low sometimes it's quick chest breathing and it has such an impact on our bodies and cognitively how our brains are working and we've just lost that connection we completely forget. It's it's so, so important. And of course, 
you had to do a lot of visualisation this year in the run-up to the Olympic Games because you had a knee operation, what was it, eight weeks before the Olympics? Yeah. So you actually couldn't dive. Visualisation was your training. Yeah, exactly. Throughout the whole pandemic, like, we weren't allowed to dive in the pool and we couldn't do... All of our training was done doing somersaults onto our sofa cushions or going on runs, Zoom workouts. So visualisation became the only way I could train. That was the only way I could be in the pool was in my head. And the same with my knee surgery. I was eight weeks out and eight weeks before the Olympic Games is when you're meant to be training at the highest possible level and like tweaking and perfecting everything. And I wasn't able to do that. I was on bed rest. I had to have my leg up and I was, wasn't able to walk. And all of a sudden I was put in this position where visualization was my only training. Visualization and visualizing myself doing all my dives was the only way that I could get myself in the pool. You know, I got to a point where I was able to get up to the stairs onto 10 meter. I'd get in my trunks and I'd stand on the end of the board and just visualize myself doing them. Even though I couldn't jump, I couldn't do the dive, but I could stand on the end of the board and just visualize myself being there. And that for me was what made the transition back into the pool after the pandemic. Well, say after the pandemic, after we were able to get back into the pool and then after my knee surgery, because I only got back to full time 10 meter training two weeks before my competition. So it, it happened. Uh, well, yeah, I don't quite know how it all managed to fall into place the way it did. But I think having that structure and that routine and having a really meticulous plan to get back to the diving pool and get back to and ready to do the Olympic Games really allowed me to get to the point where visualization was important or the little bits, the little rehab bits that I have to do around flexibility and for my knee and the recover, extra recovery that I was thinking about, all of the little 1% that I thought, you know, if I do this, it might give me that extra chance. If I do this, it might give me a bit of extra chance. And all of a sudden I was so focused on getting myself back to being healthy that I think I went into the Olympic Games in the best possible shape that I could have ever done. It's remarkable. I mean, I don't know how you didn't lose confidence at that time. I think focus is such an important word because often, well, not often, all day, every bloody day, we're distracted because there's just so much outside noise. And especially for someone like yourself who, around the Olympic Games, all eyes on you, everyone's got an opinion, everyone's got expectations or assumptions as to what might happen. And especially with something like that, having a surgery before you're about to step into what is, you know, a, a huge point in your four-year cycle I mean I don't know how you didn't lose confidence it is remarkable how you know have you got tricks to stay focused at times like that you know this year has started off probably one of the worst well rough years I mean in 2020 in the beginning of that I broke my hand so that wasn't the best chance to start to Olympic Games and obviously the Olympic Games got postponed a year because of the pandemic and I started off this year with a concussion that lasted about two and a half weeks from just hitting the water and hitting my head on the water. So that took me out of training initially at the beginning of the year. And then just as I was getting back from my concussion, I got COVID quite badly. And that took me out of the water for about eight weeks because I was so, I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't even walk up the stairs. Lance had to carry me down. I couldn't even talk. I was hospitalized uh, for a night and just because I was, it was like one of the worst experiences of my life. And again, that's when I had to use visualization and I had to just have that faith in my training and in all the years that I've been doing it, that I was going to be okay. Like there was no option for me not to be okay. And then I competed the whole year at the World Cup and the European Championships. And right after that, I, it was when I then had to have my knee surgery and then I was out for another six weeks. And it was just like one thing after another, after another. And that was kind of when I 
just surrendered myself to it. And I was just like, you know what? All of these things are happening to me and I have no control over them. And if I start to waste energy thinking, oh, why did this happen to me? Oh, I can't believe this happened. Oh, why can't I just not be injured? Why can't I just not be sick? Like all of these things, all of that's already been and gone. It's already been done. It's, it's, it's something that's already happened. And the more that you spend time worrying about it, the more that you spend time pitying yourself almost about it, like, of course, you, you have to process and deal with the emotions that come with being sick or being injured or whatever it is. But at the same time, things that have happened have already happened. Whether that goes for, you know, doing a dive at the Olympic Games. If it was a good dive or a bad dive on the first one, the next one is a completely independent event. So regardless of what's happened before, the next one has the same opportunities to go as well or terribly as any other dive. So I think I just started to get to a point again with perspective and the experience of being an elite athlete for so long that I was just like, you know what? I just have to roll with the punches, ride the wave of change, ride the wave of the unknown and just stay completely in the moment, stay so present that there's nothing that has been in the past that can affect me as much or anything that's going to happen will affect me and just be able to stay focusing on the process of how I was going to get to the Olympic Games and that process constantly shifting and constantly changing but being okay with it and knowing that right after those Olympic Games, I was going to go back, see my family and life was going to go on. And I think that's something that, uh, well, that, I think that's the only way that I could have got through this year was to just try and be as present as possible. And you mentioned a word there that I love a moment ago, surrendering or like letting go, which we are... I think we can all probably safely say we're naturally quite awful at it because we want to feel in control. We want to feel like we've got agency over what's panning out, even though if we really stop and think about it, we don't. And this last two years has completely proved that. We don't have control over anything. We, we've got you know small things in our day we can control and perhaps our reaction to the things that are happening around us. But ultimately letting go is what we need to try and do on a daily basis. But we find it so hard and also the power of the connection between body and mind and this is something again we forget it every day we think they're two separate entities walking around but you have proved again certainly with the olympics this year that having your head in the right shape was almost more important than the physical training absolutely when it comes to anything that's high pressure and anything that is so that all of the whether it's it's the same thing with um like if you're doing an exam at school or if you're going in for a job interview or if you're doing, you know, going into an Olympic Games, you can only be as prepared as you are going on that day. All of the stuff, the preparation that you've done, nothing's going to change on that day. Like all the last minute things that you're doing, all of the training has been done years in advance. All of the weeks that you've spent learning or doing whatever you need to do, it's all, what happens on that day is going to be what happens on that day. And I think that's where you know, when we were talking about earlier about pushing and pushing and always like sacrificing everything, going, 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 and like nothing will stop me. That's not always the best way to do it because you have to, what about you? What about you as a human being? How are you going to be in your best position to perform at your best if you're not feeling happy, if you're not being kind to yourself, if you're not taking the time to look after yourself? You know, it's like that age old, I say it's not an analogy, it's a thing on the airplanes when they say, put your mask on before you help others. You can't be your best self if you don't look after yourself. You can't help others in the best way that you can if you don't help yourself. So it's about trying to 
not it's not always go 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 it's not always a go at all costs without fate and you i'm not going to stop ever because i have to achieve that goal to achieve to have the best chance of achieving that goal you have to be your best self and to be your best self you have to take the time to be kind to yourself and i think that's something that people don't do enough it's just they just work themselves to the to the ground and it's again yes okay there might be reason to do that and just keep working 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 but actually you could get better work done in a shorter amount of time if you take a little bit of that chunk of time to work on yourself so that's something that I've tried to do a lot is just take the time to be able to work on me and allow myself to be happy and allow myself to be focused and allow myself to be calm and honestly that's where knit knit, I know it sounds silly but knitting became my happy place it became my place where I can switch off I don't overthink I can just be in the moment be present and in a year and a half where there's been so much overthinking it was a, a way for me to have that healthy distraction and as soon as Robbie's in bed I just sit there and I'm knitting away and I'm able just to switch off and there's something that's been very powerful about the ability to be able to do that yeah and you're and you're creating something which you know I'm all about that I love you know creativity for the soul when I'm drawing I feel like everything is fine you know there could be a hurricane outside and I wouldn't even know I'm just in that moment but Mm -hmm. self-compassion is so tricky and you you know I can see it with myself I can see it with people I love in my life who are having a tough time we will do anything to avoid self-compassion and that sounds like a strange thing to say but when you look around, you can see it. You know, you'll say, I'm, I'm too busy. I just don't have time for this. Or, oh, it's all right for them. They can do that. I can't. You know, we'll make, we'll make these boundaries for ourselves. We'll, we'll create our yeah. own limits so we don't have to do it. Because it's quite scary to, to give yourself time. It's quite scary to be kind to yourself, especially if it's yeah. an alien concept and you've never done it before. But you've introduced yeah. a really beautiful creative hobby into the mix that does the work for you almost yeah and it's something that you know i understand people that think that people are busy and like in the tw- like 21st century 2021 people can be very very busy and they might not necessarily think they have time to, for themselves but for example with my diving i have to get up and go to training and i you know take robbie to nursery and then i go to the pool right after um and i have to be up at i don't necessarily have to be awake until about seven o'clock when robbie wakes up but I purposefully set my alarm at six in order to have a bit of time for myself, a bit of time to, I watch the news, I make breakfast, I have my coffee, I, I knit, like whatever it is, but be able to make that time for yourself to, and I think that's something that's really important because then when Robbie wakes up, I'm refreshed, I'm energized and I'm like, you know what, I've had my little bit of time because as a parent, we find ourselves never having time for ourselves. So that's something that I found to be really, really useful is, you know, making that, that little bit of time for yourself whether that be five minutes ten minutes an hour whatever it is just creating that little bit of space for you to just do what you want to do uh, you know it changes your whole day hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you that's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What are you knitting at the moment? 
I am knitting lots of different things. Well, I say lots of different things. I'm at one project at a time. I just finished making, I'm going skiing in January and I just finished making a roll neck jumper that is red, but then has these ruffled flared sleeves. I'll send you a picture. It's, yeah, it's, 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 I mean, I kind of... That's right up my street. Yeah, it's, 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 it's fun. So I'm also like in the middle of designing knitwear and I've just, and that's something that I've just gotten into. Like I, I didn't consider myself to be a very good drawer and I just looked on YouTube about how to draw like fashion designs and draw, and just being able to draw the human... And I literally just watched one YouTube video. I was like, oh my gosh, that all makes so much sense of how to draw this. And now I've been downstairs. Whenever I have like a five minute break or something like that, I don't necessarily just pick up my knitting needles. I like draw pictures of like how, what designs I might do next and how to be creative in that sense. And actually, funny enough, because you're, you're wearing a houndstooth sweat, I actually just was designing a houndstooth dress, like something that you could like knit and go all the way, like you can make it as long or as whatever you want. So Yes to the houndstooth dress. I'm so into that idea. No, I love it. Creativity is so important and yes. everybody needs to realise that they are creative. We can all create something. There's, It's never too late to learn something new or to try something, even if... And this goes back into our initial conversation around perfection creating is for you it doesn't have to be this perfect outcome of and then I did the most amazing masterpiece it's just like you do it for you and you do it and it goes but I think in Britain we're bad at self-compassion we're so used to being self-deprecating we're so used to beating ourselves up and we're not used to I think in America people are much better at going I'm really good at this. I'm good at this and I like it and it makes me feel good. Over here we go, oh no, it was just a silly old thing that I did. Or, you know, we're so bad at celebrating ourselves and being kind to ourselves. And I know this for you has all been a, an incremental journey. You know, you started out in this industry very, very young and you've you've grown and you've rolled with the punches and you've had ups and downs and you've learned over the time. But it seems like now, especially this year, and I'm an outsider, so correct me if I'm wrong, but this year, lots of things have come together for you where that cognitive understanding of what works for you, the boundaries you need in place and the mindfulness that you need to back up this high octane career have, you know, they've landed this year. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, again, if somebody had told me five years ago that I was, you know, in 2016, I had one of the worst Olympic experiences. I mean, I've gotten a bronze medal in the synchro, but the individual event going from winning the prelim with an Olympic record and then crashing out in the semi-final, not even having a chance to fight for the gold medal that I thought I was going to be in the position to win in 2016. I was at one of my all-time lows in my life, not just in diving, just one of the worst experiences in my life. And I remember being so distraught about having to put in so much hard work and sacrificing so much and really purely defining myself by how well I dived. And it wasn't until after that experience, because I was so strict on myself that I allowed myself to step outside of just being a diver diving isn't what defines me I'm not just a diver I'm a husband I'm now a father I'm a son I'm a friend I'm someone that does stuff outside of the pool and all of that you know going from the worst experience ever where and then Lance said to me after the competition like maybe you weren't meant to win an Olympic gold medal today maybe your son is meant to watch you win an Olympic gold medal and if somebody had told me at that time that five years later I was going to have a son, Robbie, named after my dad, I was going to be married, I was going to be a knitter and an Olympic champion, I would have laughed in their face and been like, yeah, right. But, you know, with that hard work and self-compassion and being kind to myself, that has been the biggest change 
in the build-up to this year for me. Well, it's astonishing because you've had, you know, you've had a lot of challenges and a lot of setbacks and and hurdles that you've you've had to really ride out. And you know, one of them relating to you know how you're treating your own physical body because of course you you've always had to exert yourself in that way to to be the best and to be at the top and to train all day every day but up until a point when then also food came into the equation where you'd had someone who you work with make a comment about your weight and that led to you having disordered eating for a period of time um, as a reaction to that and that became yeah. an anxiety and a worry for you was there any particular moment or thought process that helped you heal and, and move out of that era? You know, I was 17 years old when our performance director first told me that, well, he said I was fat. And, like, my vision of what fat was was never something that I... Like, I'd never considered myself to be someone who was fat and someone that wasn't in the best shape physically and I'd never also growing up I could just get away with eating whatever I wanted to and I all of a sudden looked at my body in a completely different way and I became obsessed over losing weight being as light as possible but then not necessarily having the education to understand what being light meant like there's a whole different thing about what muscle mass versus fat mass and all of these things and create it and I put my body through hell after that moment. Like I was not eating enough and then I was under, I, was, I was, wasn't fueling myself properly so then I didn't have the energy and then all I was doing was craving things and then I would binge and that was when my spout with bulimia started coming in because I would binge and then I'd feel guilty and then I'd want to get rid of it and it was this ongoing battle for me and I ended up losing, I think it was like 10 kilos, which is like 22 pounds in a space of six months before the Olympics in 2012. And I, I mean, I really struggled with body image ever since then. And I still now find it really difficult to not train a lot and to not, you know, to eat certain things. It's, it's just been something that's like, as soon as somebody says a comment like that, it can stick in your head in like a way that you can't let, get rid of it. And it's only been in the last year with proper nutrition advice and education and support that I've been able to learn what's best for my body and to not hurt it. And again, be kind to myself and be able to allow myself to be properly fueled and be kind to my body to allow myself to be kind to my mind. And, you know, because food doesn't just fuel your body, it fuels your mind, it fuels your brain. It's, it's the reason that we're able to carry on doing so many things. So again, with that education, I really allow myself to get to the place where I am with my diving. And I think that's another reason why I was able to heal well after my surgery is because of the nutrition advice that I got and the things that I needed to do in order to get me back where I needed to be. Self-compassion is really the root of so many solutions for so many different problems. And, you know, I know it because it's something that I try desperately to cultivate so often. And, you know, I, I had a big period, I had about 10 years of bulimia on off. And I now look back and I can see that it was a huge lack of self-worth. It was a huge bout of self-punishment. And we don't often think that self-compassion is going to be the cure for these things, a solution for these things. We're trying to look for something very practical. How will I get myself out of this cycle I'm in? But if we can really Mm -hmm. root back to self-compassion, it sort of sorts itself out. You know, like you said, with the help of understanding nutrition better and and having an education around it but 
self-compassion is where it's at it it really is and it's we I don't think we put enough focus on it I think we're we're still looking for um I don't know some exterior yeah so external gratification isn't it of like just being able to someone just being like you're doing great you're doing great when actually yeah you can you can look in the mirror and tell yourself you're doing great you, you we survived, have to. Yeah, like you survived another day. Good for you. Like you have gotten through today and there are so many challenges in today's world that life is hard. And, you know, just getting through the day in whatever way that is for you. And I think during lockdown, I think allow people to be, see other people being extremely motivated and doing lots of things. And actually it was okay to deal with that lockdown and getting through it whatever way that you could and not to be, too hard on yourself if you weren't this super productive person you know it's like I said all of these challenges come in ebbs and flows but again being kind to yourself having that self-compassion and being like you know you're doing good and and understanding that you're going to have bad days and things aren't always going to be perfect and things aren't going to go really well but on the days that it doesn't go the way you want it to to not beat yourself up about it and know that you can get back on track at some other point and it may be within an hour it may be within a few days a week month a year whatever it is you will get back on track you're so right i think we're all we're all waiting for someone to come and give us a pat on the back i, I know this to be true of myself like say there's been a busy day like even today sort of juggling the whole thing of you know getting the kids ready for school and then had a couple of meetings online and then put a load of washing in and prepping for today and and whatnot and sometimes I think, come on, someone tell me I'm doing all right. And then I forget. I, I have to, I need to do that. I need to stop and go, oh yeah, you know what? I'm doing all right today. Yeah, there's, the cat's kicked the fucking litter out the tray again. And you know, the house is a bit of a shithole, but <laughs> whatever, I'm doing all right. Like we forget we can do that for ourselves. What is wrong with us? It's, I think, you know, probably social media doesn't help because that is quite literally a platform for us to get outside gratification and applause and all of that stuff and validation and we need to kind of remember that we've also got to back that up with us doing it for ourselves it's an inside job how do you deal today with exterior noise you know you've you've been in the public eye a long time you've had people making commentary about all sorts of things over the years and stuff that you've really had to be seriously courageous about like you know when you came out and and told everybody how you truly felt um that was a beautiful moment but I from reading the book you can it was a scary scary time you can read your words there about how much of an anxiety inducing time that was and you've had to all through your life all through these whether it's around the Olympics or personal matters await exterior judgment or commentary whether it's welcomed or not and it's it's a lot to deal with how, how where are you with that today I mean my whole sport is based on seven judges opinions of how well I've dived <laughs> so I and you know and with that comes you know when even in the social media side of things and then sponsorship side of things you know before coming out you know my management at the time were very much against it because they didn't want me to come out because they thought I'd lose sponsorship and lose fan base so then it became terrifying because at that point, you know, I'd already lost my dad and I was the one who was providing lots of stuff for my family. And then I didn't want to like lose that. And then it was, and then I got to a point where I just had to let go of what other people thought of me. And I think that's one lesson my dad taught me is that he used to try and make us laugh and do funny things at the, you know, and people would be watching and be like, what on earth is he doing? And it would be he didn't care what anyone else thought. He just wanted his friends and family to be happy and healthy. And that was the most important thing. And I think I've just learned to 
you know, not worry about other people's opinions that are, that don't actually matter. Um, and, you know, so again, with social media, again, that can be a very dangerous place, which is why I try to use social media as a place for inspiration. So I try to curate my social media where I only follow people that inspire me or make me laugh or make me feel good. If there's anyone that starts to make me feel bad about myself or bad about anything else, I don't follow them. And I don't, you know, I don't care to look at things that aren't going to make me feel good. Um, so that's what I try to do with my social media. Um, but it's a, it can be a, like you say, it can be a very difficult place when people are constantly throwing their opinions and judgments on. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, we keep Robbie private and, you know, because, you know, it can be a very difficult thing sometimes when people are saying, oh, well, you shouldn't be doing that. Or like, if I was the parent, like, you shouldn't, like, you know, everyone always has an opinion about what is the right way to do things. And at the end of the day, if you know that you're being the best person that you can be every day, then that's all that matters. Don't get me started on the Instagram police. There's always oh. someone who's got a little, don't have all kids when you've got a cat, they're allergic to the pollen. It's just like, all right, all right, I'll, yeah. I'll do, can you worry about your own life? Like there's always going to be someone who's going to have a little pop. But I, I know, know that you know, you've written about this prolifically in the book that there is more judgment around same-sex couples and parenting. And, and that needs to be abolished. That needs to go. You, you should not be dealing with people thinking that that's their business. It's your family. How you bring up your child is no one's business. How I bring up my children is no one's business. Yeah. But there seems to be more heat, more focus on same-sex couples. And, and I think that you and Lance are doing an amazing job of helping get rid of that. It's one of those things that, you know, as, as a parent, you already feel pressure from other parents that you want to be doing the best that you can and doing the things, whatever the right way is. You want to be seen to be doing the best thing. But then there comes an extra pressure with that with as a same-sex couple because there's extra scrutiny of like it already being a different scenario or you know what is a normal scenario as a parent as a family anyway there's so many different you know things but we just try to do our best and we try to like and I think that's what every parent is trying to do is trying to do the best for their kids and trying to do the best that they can do to give them the best chance at life and for me that's something that's been difficult because you know even things like when Robbie was little, about six months old or seven months. We were on a train one time and he pooed and the lady next to me just was like, would you like me to change his nappy for oh you? And I was like, no, I'm, I mean, I can do Are you sure? Do you, are you, do you know you know how to do it? Yeah. You, you, and I was like, I mean, he's seven months old now, so I'd like to think I've changed a few nappies. a little shit up, mate. But, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it's just little things like that. It's just find it quite funny. I think, you know, if they've not experienced same-sex couples and parenting, they can find it quite difficult to imagine how the dynamic works um and I think that just comes with again like you say visibility and seeing people being same-sex parents allows people to be like oh actually okay their kids turned out all right maybe it is a you know and the thing with same-sex couples is it's not just like a bottle of wine and a good time and you've got a kid there's a lot of thought that goes into becoming a parent as and it's it's you just you so you want to have that feeling of family and that child so badly that it's creating that family and be, being parents is something that we've dream, I've dreamed of for the longest time ever. And it just is, uh, it's been, like I say, it's been the most magical experience of my life. And I just, he's been so wanted and so loved for so long that it's just, um, it's hard when people don't see that and don't think that we're as valid as straight parents. So it, that sometimes can be challenging, but at the same time, 
we're just doing our best every day that we can. It's, it's no one's business. And what I don't understand is why people think it's up for debate. It's not, it's no one's business. And like you said, there is no normal. We have a blended family. I have two stepchildren. There are all different setups and, and there's no right or wrong. They're just all very different. And I feel like when I saw you back in you know 2018 when we were chatting around this subject and you, you guys had, like you said, thought long and hard about this way more than I did with my husband. You know, you thought long and hard mm. about this process. You knew exactly how you wanted to co-parent. The whole situation was so beautifully thought out. And we talked about surrogacy in that conversation as well. And I was reading your book and I was shocked, but possibly also naive to the fact that in the States, there's obviously a different legal um, set of parameters involved. So when Robbie was born in the States, you were instantly legally his parents. And then when you brought him back to the UK, you had to go to court, you had to have an inspector come to your house. And I was shocked. I was shocked. It, it seems absurd considering two people, you know, who are in a heterosexual relationship could have a baby and no one even bats like, oh, oh, are you, can you do this? Are you fit for it? Are you up for it? There's, there's nothing. Uh, it's, it's absurd. Yeah. And it's like, essentially we had to adopt our biological son, which was something that was really kind of surreal and crazy. And even, you know, the fact that in the eyes of the UK law, the surrogate and the surrogate's husband were the legal parents um but they had no biological connection because we had an egg donor and then our sperm so it was it's just you know even that in its sense is is weird is that it's not even actually the biological parents that were the were the legal parents and yeah it's, it's a it's a very nuanced subject and it's a very difficult subject to kind of navigate but you know, we have such an amazing relationship with our surrogate and our surrogate's family, and we're in constant communication. She's, you know, she's part of our life. She's part of our family. She's our guardian angel to help us, who's helped us create our dream family. And, you know, there's no words that can describe and to give thanks to her as, but she's just an incredible human being. And, and it's, uh, again, we're eternally grateful for her helping us have our dream family. Well, it's the most gorgeous thing and I'm so glad catching up with you today um, that you're feeling that way and it, I've been wanting to have this chat with you for so long and, you know, I, straight after you guys had Robbie, I thought, oh, it'd be so lovely to catch up with you guys and see how you're doing. So I'm so glad that you're doing well. I'm thrilled that you have Robbie in your life and, I mean, God, what a four years you've had since I last saw you. It's... Um, it's amazing. It's amazing. You've achieved so many beautiful whirlwind. things. Yeah, <laughs> personally and professionally, just incredible. And you keep inspiring so many people out there and so many young people out there. It's it's a wonderful thing to see. And thank you for writing your very wonderful book that I have right here. I loved, loved reading it. So, so much love to you, Tom Daly. And thank you for talking to me today. Thank you for having me. And I'll hopefully see you in person soon. Oh, I would love to see you in person soon, Tom, you bloody brilliant human, and also the rest of your gorgeous family. I miss that, Lance, and I haven't met Robbie yet, so that's exciting. Quite the dream team Tom's got there, just so gorgeous. Tom's book is called Coming Up For Air. It's a beautiful read. Tom is absolutely wise beyond his years, and I say that um, in a non-patronising way. It's just a fact. 
I'll be back next week talking to a woman who I think is going to really change the way you relate to your own thoughts. Make sure you're here for that by following the Happy Place podcast for free. Until then, thank you so much again to Tom, to the producer Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio and to you lovely bunch for being here. I love you.